January 13th, earlier this year, everybody in the state of Hawaii received this message on their cell phone, that a ballistic missile threat was inbound to the state and for them to seek immediate shelter, this is not a drill. And for a moment, paradise turned into panic. I got to speak with a dear friend, Dan Chun, who's the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu. He says he serves there because somebody has to. And he said as soon as he got that text message, he immediately reached out to family members, to friends, and then he started, uh, he started thinking about, like, okay, I'm supposed to seek shelter. Where are the shelters? That, that they were completely unprepared for something like this, and for 38 minutes, they were left in the panic mode until their phones, their highways, their TV sets said this, there is no missile threat or danger to the state of Hawaii, repeat, false alarm. You could feel the collective sigh of an entire state. What Dan shared with me was interesting. He said, you know, it's interesting. Apparently, we had all the protocols to be able to send out a warning, and they hadn't thought through the process of how to be able to send out an all-clear that the software and the procedures and everything were all set for us to be able to warn people, alarm people about what's going on, but that they hadn't thought through the process of letting people know that everything's okay, that it might be a mistake. There wasn't enough margin for recovery built into the training or the system. And as he was describing this, I was thinking, you know, there's a lot of relationships that are like this as well. There, it's really clear, the warning, the danger that something's going on, but that we're not necessarily as good in being able to say, everything's okay. To give the someone you're in relationship with the all clear, that it's going to be all right. We've been in a series where we've been talking about relationships. We've been talking about what it means to get close. We've been talking about creating connections in an age of destruction. And as we've been walking through this series, we've been walking through these different passages in the portion of Genesis where we talk about creating connections and destroying connections and deepening connections. And today, we're going to talk about what happens when a relationship goes bad. How do you repair a connection How do you heal a ruptured relationship? And in this series, as we've been walking through the book of Genesis, we've been seeing some of those signature stories, and we've been looking at them through the prism or the lens of relationship. And today, we skip all the way to the end of Genesis, to the last chapter. And so, if you will, grab your Bibles, the one that we've provided for you to use in the pew rack in front of you, or if you've brought your Bible with you, we'd love for you to pull that out turn to Genesis chapter 50. We're going to start reading in the 14th verse. And while you're turning there, I need you to to know that uh, a little context about what's happening here in the life of Joseph. So Joseph, when he was younger, was just a punk. He was not a good guy to want to hang out with. He was not easy to be a brother or a friend with. Um, His father, Jacob, played favorites with him. Uh, Joseph got to shop at Sid Mashburn while all of his brothers had to shop at Goodwill. It was not a really healthy family dynamic. And so while this was going on within the family, 
Joseph's brothers cook up this idea of like, you know what? Joseph is the source of all of our problems. We got to get rid of him. So first they decided to murder him. And then they're like, maybe that's a little too extreme. So we'll just sell him into slavery. That's better. And so they sell him into slavery and he gets carted off and they think that they're never going to see him again. Now, Joseph goes on his own incredible adventure that takes him eventually not just to prison, but also into Egypt and ends up becoming the second most powerful person in Egypt. And the brothers at a certain part of the story are in the promised land, and yet they're suffering from an incredible famine, and they have to find their way to Egypt in order to get food. And that is when Joseph, who they thought was dead, who they thought was the problem, ended up being the agent of their salvation. And in chapter 5 of, chapter 45, excuse me, of Genesis, Joseph and his brothers are reconciled. And we get to the point here at the end of Genesis chapter 50 where Jacob, Joseph, and his brother's father actually dies. Now, in recapturing that story, maybe already the good news that you needed to hear was my family doesn't sound so messed up anymore. Let's see how Joseph is a master at forgiveness and healing ruptured relationships, starting in verse 14. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs that we did to him? Do you notice here how Joseph's brothers have a view of a relationship? That a relationship is all about holding grudges and paying back. When my soon-to-be wife, Kelly, was in seminary, there was this one particular family that she really admired the way that they interacted with one another as a family. And she approached the, the, the woman in the relationship and said, would you be willing to help coach me up on what does it mean to be uh, kind of, uh, to have a flourishing, godly relationship? And so this woman took her under her wing, and they had coffee together to explore what it really takes. And after Kelly describing some of the things that she thought about our relationship, this woman stopped her and said, well, the first thing you've got to do, you've got to stop keeping score. She could tell that Kelly was thinking, you know, kind of, it's kind of tit for tat, that first we do this for his career, and then we're going to do this for my career, and, you know, he's going to scratch my back, and then I'm going to scratch his. And she's like, no, 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 you can't live your life that way. That's not a life of grace. There's a Bible passage that elucidates this. It says, love keeps no record of wrong. And one of the things that Joseph's brothers cannot let go of is they are still keeping score in their head. And yet Joseph has forgiven and already moved on. So they say it this way. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. We actually don't know if he said these instructions or not. This is what you were to say to Joseph. They could have been making this whole thing up. I ask you to forgive your brothers and the sins and the wrongs that they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servant of God, your father. And when the message came to him, Joseph what? He weeps. He breaks down. He can't contain the emotions within him. And you have to ask yourself, why is he crying? Well, I told you earlier that in chapter 45, Joseph had forgiven them and they had reconciled. 
at least from his vantage point. And between chapter 45 and chapter 50 is 17 years. They've been holding on to this for 17 years, thinking it's all about paybacks, thinking it's all about holding grudges. And with the tipping point of Jacob dying, their father, they're like, he's going to get back to us. And as a result of this, Joseph is brokenhearted. John Orberg, when he says that our relationships fail, he says it ends this way. When a marriage ends, it often ends with hatred in the heart. Sometimes people ending a marriage don't just say, I don't love you. They say, I don't think I ever loved you. They say, I don't, they, what's more, they often don't even know how they got to that point. It didn't happen by accident. There were a thousand little ruptures that never got repaired. A thousand crucial conversations that never happened. A thousand moments when there were just one or two on the scale and got glossed over. When relationships fail, it is rarely the big thing. It is always those thousand little paper cuts that never got addressed, never got repaired, never got healed. 17 years for Joseph's brothers. All those little wounds, they still haven't gone away. And so Joseph weeps. And I love how Joseph addressed this. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are you slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be alarmed. Am I in the place of God? Joseph's brothers, they don't see themselves as brothers. They see themselves as slaves. This is a kind of foreshadowing to what will happen in the great story of the prodigal son when the older resentful brother says, listen, for all these years, I've been working like a slave for you. You've never even once given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has come back, you killed the fatted calf for him. Even though he's a brother, he feels like a slave. Even though he's a part of the family, he feels like he doesn't really belong. And this is just as true for Joseph's brothers, that even though he has welcomed them as brothers, that he has helped to save their lives, that they still see themselves as slaves. And in response to that, Joseph has that one rhetorical question, am I in the place of God? This is maybe the thing that I struggle with the most in relationship. And that is putting myself in the role of God when it comes to that relationship. That I always feel like I have to be right. That I always feel like I have to be in control. That I always feel like that I have to be in charge or to win. How about you? Do you ever struggle with that? To be in the place of God? One of the things that we uh, kind of joke about in our family is we talk about that you, can, you have a choice. You can be right or you can be happy. We don't know where that phrase came from, but we use it a lot. You can be right or you can be happy. Kelly and I remind ourselves of that. We try to remind the children of that. Earlier this week, things were getting a little heated around the Conwisher household. The two girls were kind of getting into it a little bit. And I chimed in, hey, you can be right or you can be happy. And one of our daughters turned and looked at me and said, oh, I'm going to be right because that makes me happy. 
so easy for us to, instead of inviting God into the relationship, to displace God and to say, I'm going to play God in the relationship. And this is the oldest sin in the book, is it not? Genesis chapter 3. The reason they ate of the knowledge, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is because they wanted to be like God. Joseph's like, am I in the place of God? There's nowhere to, no way to ultimately repair a relationship where somebody's trying to be God in the relationship. John Wartburg says, there is a God and it is not you. And then this is the signature verse of this story, Genesis 50, 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I love how Max Lucado describes this verse with the imagery that's behind the Hebrew verbs that are here. The, the part where it talks about that, that God intends uh, for good and that you intended harm is actually the imagery of someone who is a weaver. You are weaving harm into my life, but God is reweaving goodness. Satan weaves, God reweaves. It's the way that God participates in redemption. And then from this artisan imagery, then the Bible moves to construction imagery. You were weaving harm. God was weaving good to bring about, to build technically, to construct in Hebrew. That God is building something. And what does it say that he's building? It says, it says that he's building the saving of many lives. Gary Thomas has a really great book on marriage. It's called Sacred Marriage. And the subtitle is worth the price of the book alone. What if marriage was designed to make us holy instead of happy? If you think the design of your relationship, your friendship, your marriage, whatever it is, if you think that the goal of that relationship is to satisfy your own needs, you are missing out on what God's design is for relationship. That no matter what's going on, no matter what's getting woven into your lives, God has got this redemptive plan where he is about bringing about a greater salvific work in the world. God's purpose for your relationships is to make you more and more into the image of God, into the image of Christ. And so Joseph is able to confidently respond, so then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. Notice here is the fulfillment of the question in Genesis chapter 4, am I my brother's keeper? The ultimate answer is yes. Joseph will be his brother's keeper. For him for them, for their children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, he spoke to their heart. So much of the reason that we get marriage counseling wrong today is that we have a skills-based approach to kind of marriage counseling. We, we, we talk about, you know, teaching someone to be a better listener, teaching someone to be more assertive, uh, conflict resolution theories. All those things are well and good, but sometimes when we coach people up on skills, they just get better at hurting one another more effectively. It's like someone teaching someone the skills of karate, but without teaching them the self-restraint and the discipline. 
One of the things that they discovered that actually works in marriage therapy is what they refer to as emotional attachment theory, or we might refer to it as speaking to the heart. Emotional attachment theory involves three things. No matter what relationship you were in, everybody has these three needs, inclusion, influence, and intimacy. Inclusion, the need to be accepted. Influence, the need to matter. And intimacy, the need to be close. Anytime there's a breakdown in a relationship and I'm meeting with a couple, I usually pull this out, like especially if there's been infidelity, I'll pull these three things out, I'll draw them on a piece of paper and say, which one of these three things was most absent from your relationship that led to the affair? It's never just about the physicality. It's about something that was wrong in the emotional attachment that led to what happened. Doesn't excuse it, but at least we're able to get to the real issue. When Kelly and I were uh, in the midst of that early childhood years where you, you're, we had moved from going you know, to zone defense to man-to-man, we had multiple kids, and if you, if you have more than one kid, it doesn't just incrementally get harder, it gets exponentially harder, you get that much more or less sleep, you get that much, um, you know, like what did we used to do with our time before we're in the early childhood phase, and so we're in kind of the crucible of those really difficult years where you're just really tired. And we noticed that that was putting a strain on our, our marriage. And I was learning in a, a doctoral program, I was learning emotional attachment theory at the same time as we were going through this. And, you know, of course, I thought I would bless my wife by describing emotional attachment theory in the midst of our conflict. And I was explaining to her that what she needed to work on was that... Um, <laughs> that my needs of intimacy were not being met, (laughs) that I needed to feel closer, that I thought all this time and all of this attention and all this energy was, was going towards the kids. And we used to be closer than we really were and that she really needed to work on that. And, and then she described these three things and she said, you know what, Rich, I used to feel like I mattered to you. We started out dating when we would talk about big dreams, and if you had a biblical or theological question, you used to come to me. You used to get kind of stuck in your sermon prep, and you used to come kind of try to work it out with me, and now you don't do that anymore. I feel like I just stay at home and take care of these kids, but I don't matter to you in the way that I used to. You used to treat me like an intellectual equal, and now I feel like I'm not a partner with you in that way. the emotional attachment had gotten strained. It was fraying. And the only way that we were able to move forward was to be able to speak to the heart, to be able to talk about what was going on in our relationship at that point. And so Joseph speaks to his brother's heart in the midst of the tears. And then I love the payout of how this plays at the end of this story. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all of his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children and also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Isn't this a great image, an old great-grandfather having 
these newborn infants placed in his lap. And in the Bible, it's very specific, not just with names, but also with the fact that only one of the grandchildren are named here. You got Manasseh and Ephraim, the two sons, and then you have Macher. Why is his name mentioned? Because Macher means one who was sold. Joseph was sold into slavery. And that ended up being his salvation. The Bible teaches us that you were not your own, that you have been bought with a price. And until you have come to terms with the fact that you and I have been sold out to God, it's very hard to heal those little ruptures and to repair those ballistic warnings. You were not your own. You have been bought with a price. I'm gonna show you an image of a camp and conference family center that means a lot to Kelly and me. This is called Mount Hermon. It's in Northern California. All the buildings are kind of like most family camps. They uh, are adequate for the job until you realize what the setting is for this camp looks like this. It is in the middle of a redwood forest. The location is basically a cathedral into itself. It's one of those times where they invite pastors to come and pastors preach every single day. They're preaching all the time and everybody else is engaged in all kinds of activities, everything from zip lines and others. And there was this one couple who was there who was not a couple, at least not anymore. They were at this camp and Five years before that, they had discovered that their relationship was falling apart, that they didn't love each other anymore. And so they had gotten a divorce. They had young kids, and so they were doing everything they could to keep the civility at the highest it could be. And over the course of after the divorce, in the midst of the grief of that, the wife turned her life over to Christ, and she found the love of a church that carried her through the pain of that loss. Over the years, in the midst of their friendship, the ex-husband noticed the change that had happened in his former wife. And they decided that they would go to camp and that they would have separate accommodations, but that he would come along with a friend. And over the course of taking walks in the Redwood Forest and listening to messages, two things happened. He started to fall in love with Christ, and they started to re-fall into love with one another. As a result, about six months later, they got married, and they were picking a honeymoon location and they decided to come to Southern California so that when they got married on Saturday night, the first thing they would do as a couple would be to come to the St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church and to come and worship. How many of you picked your honeymoon location based on the church that you would go to the next morning? Any takers? Never seen that before or ever since. It's because they knew. They knew that their relationship 
was absolutely dependent on the grace of God. That it had failed once. There had been all kinds of the weaving of harm, but God was reweaving it for good. They had the protocols of knowing how to send up the alerts. They knew how to send these types of messages. But they didn't know how to send the recovery messages, the messages that tell you that everything's going to be okay, that it's all right, that we're still here. I forgive you. And so right now in your mind, before you come to the table, I want you to try to imagine somebody in your life, a friend, coworker, extended family member, a spouse, where your relationship is strained and in need of repair. And I want to put up these kind of summary points up on the screen and ask you which part of your relationship needs to be addressed by some of these little bits of wisdom from God's Word. Do you need to stop keeping score? Do you need to forgive more regularly and feel more deeply for your, for your other? Do you need to learn how to speak to the heart? Do you need to be reminded that you're not God? That you're not in control? You're not always right? Or maybe you need to remember who you are and what was done for you in Christ. It's hard to give what you haven't first received. Which of those things and which aspect of your life do you need right now? I'm going to close with this. First fight that Kelly and I ever had was on our honeymoon. We fought over predestination and free will. <laughs> God's honest truth. But if you're going to fight about those things, at least fight in Italy looking at the Mediterranean while you're doing it. <laughs> Second significant fight that Kelly and I ever had was more pedestrian than that. It was over money. And I was kind of surprised at her aggressiveness and at my defensiveness. Truly, we had gifts I didn't even know about. And so the next day, I kind of wandered into a friend's office, a fellow pastor, a wise old sage by the name of Asa Hunt. And I said, Asa, I had a fight with my wife last night about money. He's like, yep. I said, Asa, it felt like our relationship was on fire. He kind of smiled and said, Rich, what do you do when you accidentally turn on fire? I smiled back and I said, stop, drop, and roll. And he said, yep. You got to stop what you're doing. You got to drop to your knees. And you ought to roll with God's grace. It's the only thing that puts out the flames. Let's pray. God, as we come to the table today, will you now repair the ruptures of the hearts in this room? Will you enable us 
to be a people who are restored, healed, forgiven, quick to give that like Joseph was. Lord, I imagine in this room there are people who have been holding on to wounds for years and years, just like Joseph's brothers. There are others who are caught in modes of holding grudges and paybacks, and we need you to be the great master weaver and master builder in our lives. Lord, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. And so as you heal the world, will you heal even us? And we pray all of these things with great anticipation in the strong name of Jesus and all of God's people said.